You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. For the last session, we're going to be discussing guarding the flock against woke Christianity, guarding the flock against woke Christianity. Our text, if you want to put your, your finger there, will be 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Before we jump into the text exegetically or expositionally, I want to do three things. So the first thing I want to do is to take you just on a historical journey of what got us to this point. How we, how we landed at, at this spot from a uh, ideological standpoint, what's gone on in culture. Next, I'll, I want to then unpack the text. As we look at the text, we'll look at the way that, that Paul instructed Timothy to see if there's any, if that instruction would be beneficial to you and to me in this critical hour. And then my goal is to make those connections apparent so that we can benefit from Scripture. And then finally, we'll apply those instructions for our context as we examine how to maintain a, a, a resolve, how to maintain a, 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 a fixed thought process about these things that we're encountering. First, let's read the text. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, read this way. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. This is Paul's instruction to a young Timothy. Now, as I walk through a historic timeline of the Just Thinking podcast, I was, I was trying to figure out if we're going to talk about guarding, the, guarding the, the flock of God against woke Christianity. I, I, I just have this. What, what do we have in our, our library, our archive uh, that could be helpful. When we talk about guarding the flock and, and what kinds of tools are needed, what kinds of resources are available, I wanted to see how well you know, Daryl and I had actually done it at making sure that, that folks had something that they could be armed with. I mentioned earlier that um, there are places where we go where pastors or church leaders come to us and say, man, I, I hadn't had a chance to think about that topic or subject until I listened to you guys do a deep dive on it, and it was incredibly helpful. I also mentioned that I think one of the ways that pastors can guard the flock is by, by utilizing us and others as resources or tools. I know uh, Vody has a great book called Fault Lines. I think that book is incredibly helpful uh, in letting you know the, the, the historic trajectory of the issues we've discussed. Uh, our friend uh, Owen, he has a book. It's called The Christianity and Wokeness. Uh, I, I think... I don't know if, I, I know that I had a chance to review the book and then I, I, I signed it. I think you did too as well, right? Yeah, we, we, we reviewed the book before it was published and said, oh, this is good stuff. We, we commend those books and resources to you. I'm aware with 
G3 Press, we're constantly providing additional material uh, for you uh, regarding this issue. There's a, I, I, I'm tempted to name the author and the name of the book, but it's not yet in final print yet. I want to be careful of that. But be looking uh, to G3 Press for, for a, a book about uh, wokeness, about uh, how to navigate these issues uh, from a pastoral perspective. So if you're a church leader or a pastor, uh, this book will be incredibly helpful because what, what the, the writer, the author did was he went through the book of Galatians and just walked through the text of Scripture and really provided some tremendous tie-ins and, and ideas that will be incredibly helpful. Those are some, some tools and things you can look to. But the reality is, as we... Uh, began dealing with this issue to a great degree, one of the things that we found out is that there's not a lot of written material about this stuff. There, there really isn't a lot in the way of, of tools and resources. Daryl and I are, are working with, a, with an editor right now uh, on, on, a, on uh, the next uh, installment of our book. We have a, a Just Thinking, most of you have the book, Just Thinking About the State. The next installment will be uh, Just Thinking About Ethnicity. And that'll probably out, be out the first part of next year. We'll be looking for, for that. But there aren't a lot of, a lot of resources. I, I love, we, we just had a conversation uh, just moments ago about the importance of taking these big issues, these, these issues with the, these multisyllabic issues, right? The, the gender nonconforming binary, all of that, and boiling it down to the root issue, which is sin. And when you're able to do that, you're able to identify the cure, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's important for you to do at any turn, but particularly for church leaders. But there, are, there are a handful of resources that you can get that operate from a biblical worldview. Those are helpful. Use those. Educate yourself on those. But more importantly, make sure that you're opening up the word of God in the way that we're attempting to do in this space. Um, and be sharing that with your people. We're grateful, again, as, as this is our, our last session, I'd be remiss if I didn't once again just say thank you uh, for every uh, nice, nicety, all the hospitality. Daryl, myself, Melissa, we've been really blessed by the ministry here this weekend. And our hope is that, uh, that for your time, we never want to waste anyone's time. Our hope is that for your time, you received a tremendous benefit in the way of being equipped. That's what the conference is about. It's about being equipped so that you can go and do the work of ministry. And we're hopeful that we were effective in doing that. But as I, I walk, walk through our, our historic timeline of just thinking in the episodes, one of the things I noted is, is, is if you watch what we were doing, and if you go back, you can see this in retrospect, you can almost watch a timeline of what was happening to get us to where we are. Our, our third episode was done in uh, January of 2018, and it was a, it was a uh, the episode was was called racial separation, and it was a it was a a episode based on an article written by a black lawyer. And this black lawyer had written an opinion piece uh, for the New York Times. He wrote it in November of 2017, but it had started picking up traction. In fact, this lawyer was actually on Tucker Carlson's show at one point. And we talked about this issue because the, the, the idea that he posited, he posited a question, and the question was this, can my children be friends with white people? Can my children be friends with white people? 
And he had written this lengthy piece in this article that caught the attention of some folks months later after kind of the holidays. I think it, I think it really came to fore because we were rolling into Dr. Martin Luther King's holiday and some of the issues around that. And so that it got paid attention to it. And in 2018, we started seeing these kinds of stories pop up. And so Daryl and I were actually on a, on a weekly cycle. I don't know how we did that, but every week we were doing something about one of these articles. We would just grab an article, read what happened, and then provide commentary on it. That's kind of how, how we cut our teeth, how things got started. Well, episode four, we had social activism in the black church. Episode five, it was Colin Kaepernick and civil rights. This was right around the time of the Colin Kaepernick thing. As soon as it popped, Daryl and I were, were talking about it. So for those who maybe come late to, the, to, to, to some of these issues, you can go back and look. I even saw that we, had a, we actually had a, an episode early on about gun control. Uh, we actually had an, uh, an early episode. I mean, there were so many things that, that, uh, that the Lord and his providence had us discuss. Daryl then hit on an on a episode called Big Bang Racism. That was episode six. Episode 10, MLK Jr. and the deity of Christ. Well, by that time, I think this was, this was right, probably right after the King holiday where King is, of course, re-deified, right? We, we have a, you know, a whole holiday where he's looked at in, in ways that he, he shouldn't be. We should have a proper light about who he is and his theology, as I kind of shared with you. But we were talking about that. Episode 16 was probably my favorite. It was one of my favorites. It was how to be a better white person. <laughs> How to be a better... So if you're interested in what it takes (laughs) to being a better white person, episode 16 will be the one that'll help you out. Episode 22 is one that caught the attention of a lot of people within reform circles. And the reason why was because it was our commentary on what was the MLK 50 conference. If you are aware, it was the 50th anniversary of the MLK assassination and reformed leaders from all over began to gather and say some things that seemed a little out of place. And at the time, we were just new to this whole podcasting thing and didn't know how wide or how deep or or how far our reach was. But we were very conservative in, in naming names. I don't think we named a name. However, if you had watched the MLK 50 thing unfold when I began to say things like, you know what, if, if a pastor is going to hire me because uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a six and, and he wants to hire a seven, and you know, I said, he's got it all wrong because at the end of the day, I'm a 10. <laughs> and he's just missing out. If, you, if you'd watched it, you would know who I was talking about and what was happening. You would know that Matt Chandler was the person who had made the statements that he did that were concerning to me at the time, and we discussed those issues in particular. Episode 45, Social Justice and the Gospel. This was long before the, even the, the folks who had put together the statement on social justice and the gospel came out. I think at the time you were behind the scenes doing some, some writing and some editing of some of the work on the statement for, uh, for social justice and the gospel during that time. Uh, one of my favorite episodes to say is episode 67 because of the way Daryl says it. He, the episode is called Whiteness, and he emphasizes the WH. It's whiteness. <laughs> we had sufficiency of scripture against black liberation theology, politics in the black church. And then the episode that I think thrusted us past uh, reformed circles and really put us 
in, the, in, in more of a, a bigger spotlight was the George Floyd and the Gospel episode, episode 89. A lot of folks at that point had heard about us. The church of BLM, activist theology would follow episode 116, the church and culture. And again, I give you the title of these episodes for you to take some time as we depart from here. If you're looking for a resource to go back to, oftentimes it's not simply as you've experienced this weekend. It's not we're showing up and telling you our words and our opinions so you can think, oh, we're so smart because that's not at all what we intend. Our intent is to say, here's what's out there in the way of, of original source material. Here's what's out there in the way of theological material. Here's what's out there in the way of historic theology in, in, in regard to church history in regard to practical theology so that you can have a, a, a robust picture of how to address the issue through a biblical worldview. Well, it was during some of this time as we we're preparing for this, as I go back historically and think about my own condition, my own situation, I realized that I was kind of a, a wide-eyed participant at my first SBC convention. The first one I ever, ever attended was in 2019. And as the days of that convention progressed, I think we, would, we all learned about what would become Resolution 9. Resolution 9 would, would, would come forth. For those who aren't aware of Resolution 9 and, 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 and SBC environment, Southern Baptist Convention environment, every year, the Southern Baptists, about the second or third week in, in, in June, uh, meet together and convene. 44,000 churches from all over the country, the world's largest denomination, gather together for the purpose of, of, of identifying what they believe, where they stand, being encouraged by resources that are there, and then going back out to do the work of ministry. A lot of money exchanges hands. If, if you're familiar with the SBC, you know this process. It was in 2019 when we were there, and on the floor of the convention, there's a process to provide uh, uh, the, the, the uh, leadership resolutions. And these resolutions, while they're not binding in any way, they give you an indication of where the church, where the SBC in particular, stands on a given topic, on a given subject. You can go back through the history if you ever want to look at, at, at you know, the SBC convention and their previous resolutions. There were times when they stood on the wrong side of history, not only about the issue of slavery, but even on the issue of the, of the pro-life movement. There's actually a resolution that, 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 that doesn't actually strongly condemn uh, the idea of, of, of life. They actually affirm choice. So, so there were times when the resolutions were on the wrong side of, 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 of not, not just history, of, of, of Scripture, let me be clear about that. And this was one of those times. I was there in 2019. I was in the room as this resolution gets entered onto the, onto the floor. And there was some, some chaos that stirred about it. And I'd, I'd known some of the thought leaders that were behind the scenes trying to address the issue. But in the resolution, the idea that CRT could be used as an analytical tool for the purpose of identifying issues uh, within SBC churches, that it was a profitable uh, a tool that could be used to, to think through uh, historic wrongs. Well, as you've been here this full week and understand the, 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 the messiness, the, 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 the wild-eyed ideology that is CRT, the fact that it is all about criticism, it has nothing to do with any analysis, you recognize the wrecking ball that having a resolution with, a, with the largest denomination in the world, affirming it, 
and what that, the impact that that will have throughout the rest of church culture. Well, this is not the way to guard the flock against woke Christianity. As we saw that enter the floor, we were very concerned. I know, I knew even at the time, given the history of what I'd already dealt with, with, with Daryl and, and I on the podcast, but, but even more than that, what, what Daryl gave you a little bit of his resume, how he had went and studied uh, black liberation theology at Princeton, how years prior to that, I had a clear understanding of what CRT was and how damaging it was and where it could rear its ugly head and was talking about this on the podcast. The crazy part about it is I recognized that there had been no guarding of the flock because as this whirlwind took place, most that were in the convention thought, what's the big deal? If, if CRT is something that, that would be helpful to, to right the wrongs of, of historic past, well, what would be wrong with it? When they're thinking about justice, their thought process is, well, I mean, who doesn't want justice? It doesn't matter if it's social justice. I mean, it's justice, right? I mean, we all just want to get along. I know we have a historic past regarding racism and the beginning of our denomination. So this will be another opportunity to right that wrong. The problem is very few people that were there in the audience knew what was taking place. And so when they were ready to pass the resolution, they just flip up their little folder and there you go, it's, a, it's, it's voted in. I was there when I left that place. I thought, oh my goodness, what has gone on? Now, if you've been in the SBC, you have friends connected with the SBC, you might be familiar or aware of what's called the conservative resurgence. It's where the, the SBC was on the brink of kind of a liberal decline. Uh, uh, the, the issues that surrounded it had to do with, with the ideas about, about the origins of life or whether Genesis could really be taken literally or whether it could be uh, something that, that, that wasn't taken literally. Maybe there was some allegorical components. This was a, a battle within the SBC, uh, in, in primarily in its seminaries. And, what, and because, that's the, because the seminary is the place where, where future pastors are trained, this was a real problem. And it was those who were part of the conservative resurgence that, that jumped in on what, when the SBC was on the brink of, of, of falling off the cliff in, in a liberal direction forever. Men who believed in the, in, the, in, in the inerrancy of Scripture who stood up and said, no, we're not going to, to do that. They began to, to gather, to, 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 to make contacts with one another, to strategize and to figure out ways to, to shift leadership into the right direction. This was one of the rare times. This was, a, this was not an overnight process. If you really begin to calculate the, the time frame of the, of the conservative resurgence, it took about 20 to 25 years from the time they determined that that's what they wanted to do to see the full orbs shift into a conservative direction. This was what was known as the conservative resurgence. So last night in the Q&A when I was asked, well, you know, do you think, they're, do you think it's off the cliff? Do you think, you know, what do you think? I, I, I hesitate. Not because I don't know with clear eyes where things are. I absolutely do. Just ask me, I'll tell you. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'd hate to think that this massive denomination that God has in the past used in great ways is over. 
At the same time, here's what I do understand. God never needed the SBC to accomplish its, his, his goals, what he desires to see happen for the purpose of the kingdom. The SBC, however, needs God. Of that, it, I'm absolutely clear. The truth is that after the 2019 convention, most that were departing home from that convention had no idea, no definition, or understanding of what critical race theory was. Why? There had been no proper protection of the flock of God. That protection happens in local churches. That protection happens when a, when a pastor who understands the times recognizes perhaps he's not the subject matter expert, but is willing to bring someone in in an effort to protect the flock. That's the kind of thing that has to happen. Fewer still had any idea of, of, about intersectionality or the impact of social justice. However, we would all soon be acutely aware of its impact and the fruit that these, as these ideologies would actually play themselves out in the streets in 2020, having left the convention. By late December, no less than January of 2020, there was tremendous outrage at the time at a little known synodoc called, or, or, or it was a, they called it a synodoc. It was a, it was a movie that was on, uh, that, that was on uh, YouTube called By What Standard. It was created and produced by friends of mine, Tom Askell and, and founders and uh, a dear friend of mine by the name of Chalk Knox. I got a chance to hang out with Chocolate Knox a little bit ago. He's a, a guy who produces these movies, did a fantastic job. I had no idea at the time. This is a little backstory. I'll, I'll take a little rabbit trail here. Uh, as this movie was being uh, recorded, I had no idea what was being recorded. So I'm sitting there with my friend Knox, right, David, and, and I'm watching them uh, do these snippets across the SBC and interviews. And I'm actually in a room where, where, where Tom is and he's having a conversation. He's on the phone. He's getting video. And I'm back there. I have no idea the impact that this synodoc is going to have, that the 2019 resolution is going to. I'm just a kid in a candy store just hanging out with some friends watching all this unfold. I only began to put all of the pieces together after I got back home. And I went, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? If you haven't had a chance to view that and you were curious about the trajectory of one of the largest denominations, I would encourage you to take a look at that. It's called By What Standard. It will give you a clear picture of what's happening in that space. Again, it is, it is June. The SBC is about to meet again. And they're going to determine the future direction that they're about to take. And, and as they do, before they do, it would be, uh, it would be good for you uh, in, in an effort to, to, to see this flock of people protected from those kinds of issues that we've discussed all weekend, to take a look at that uh, movie, see what it has to say, see what, what's in it so that you can be aware so that when, when the news hit the fan, hit, you know, when, when, the, when the news stories hit the fan in the next two or three weeks, you're up to speed knowing what, what is all uh, you know, going to happen, what will take place so that you, you can be aware of those things. 2020 wouldn't end, though, prior to us becoming very familiar with names like Ahmad Arbery in February of 2020, Brianna Taylor in March, uh, March 13th of 2020, and George Floyd, May 25th of 2020. Learning their names and their stories would mark us all as we witnessed nationwide protests in the streets, all in the name of justice. 
And as I recount that brief glimpse at history, those days and events seem so long ago. Do they not? They, they, seem, they, don't, they don't seem like two years ago. It seems like decades ago that that, had, that took place. Why? Because in the news cycle, what we're seeing is, a, is the constant barrage of CRT and social justice and the gender confusion and the wars of, 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 of culture that are taking place. But the question that you have to ask is, back in 2020, as we're watching all of this take place, even, you know, we come out of the, the, the convention in 2019, we didn't have a convention. And I think that was the providence of God. The reason I say that is because, as I mentioned, when, when, when people left, they didn't know what CRT was. And it took almost an entire year for them to get up to speed. And Daryl and I were everywhere. As the lockdowns took place in March because of COVID, we were doing two and three podcast news sources every, every day. Every week we were somewhere uh, either live in video or on, some, I mean, on somebody's uh, podcast or, or their news show or, or some radio program discussing these issues. We had churches who would call us and ask us, hey, can you, you guys, I, I know you've got a library of information. I want to pipe you in uh, on the screen, uh, video conference you in. Our church will meet if you can talk to us about these issues. We were everywhere. And again, I say that in, not, not from a standpoint of bragging, but, but to, to show you the nature of, of, of the need for people to get up to speed on these issues relatively quickly. In 2020, we did not meet as a convention. As a result of that, people got educated. It was a good thing. So by the time the convention would reconvene, people knew what they were coming in for. Sadly, there was still no movement on Resolution 9. Now, they introduced a a different resolution, but it never mentions CRT as as, as problematic, as, 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 as something that should be avoided. One, as I think about the response of evangelicalism during the time, even before all the CRT stuff happened, one popular church website, I think, captured the time that we were in in 2019 very well. I won't take the time to read you everything, but what they did was they, in 2019, they were talking about, evangelicalism was talking about church growth. We had a great economy, and we were all talking about the growth of the church, what we were going to do moving forward. Things were great. So let me give you a backdrop of what, of what a major evangelical uh, uh, website actually had uh, to tell you about what they needed to do in this current cultural environment uh, that we had. The question that they asked was, how do, you, how do you grow your church numerically? Well, they had an answer, and the answer was, you brand it. You make it a brand. You, you need to increase your digital presence. You need to increase your email blast. You need to start a newsletter. Here's an idea. Number five, you need to sponsor a local sports team. And what you need to do is you go to the local sports team. You find a, a patch that you can sew on their, 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 their jackets or their, their, you know, their, their jerseys that represents your church. So that when someone asks them where they got their jerseys, they can say, we got it from that church. And then they can come into your church as a result. At no time did any of the suggestions on this major site include preaching the gospel. 
At no time did this website include evangelism, sharing your faith, or anything of the like. It was all about a a contemporary view of how do we attract the culture. As churches increased their social media footprint and focused on the right words and say the right things, there there was much more focus on what it takes to draw a crowd than preaching the gospel. There was little desire to to offend others with subjects like sin or repentance, things that actually mattered the most. Many had exchanged being salt and light for being civil and liked. Pragmatism is the approach that says if it works, it must be right. But sadly, far too many believed this as truth and began using strategies to attract bodies instead of attracting believers. In light of this, by the middle of 2020, no one should have been surprised that on Sunday, the Sunday after George Floyd's death, to witness pastors breathlessly racing into their pulpits to declare that black lives mattered. On May 30th, in fact, five days later, before all the circumstances, five days after George Floyd's death, before all the circumstances surrounding that death were clear, or, or even the motivation of one Derek Chauvin, the, the officer that, that was engaged in the act, SBC leadership had connected all the dots to those things in question and who had put out a statement. I want to read to you the statement that they put out. And in light of what you now know, I want you to hear it with different ears. This is a a test for you to see if if your discernment is actually increased as a result of our time together. Here's what the statement said. I just want to read it to you. I want you to put your your, your ears on, right? I want you to think through this from from a standpoint of having right discernment. They said this, quote, As a convention of churches committed to the equality and dignity of all people, Southern Baptists, Grieve the death of George Floyd, who was killed on May 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. While all grieve, we understand that in the hearts of our fellow citizens of color, incidents like these connect to a long history of unequal justice in our country. Going back to the days of grievous Jim Crow and slavery eras, end quote. After the time we've spent, you you, you all's radar should be going off. You should automatically, the the, the word reproblematize should be jumping out of your mouths and minds, and you should go, oh, they're going to reproblematize slavery and Jim Crow, pull it from its context, Slap it into this context for the purpose of creating a narrative. And that narrative is now attached to our fellow citizens of color. Oh, they've now separated the fact that we're all the Imago Dei, created in the image of God, and have now decided that we're to respond differently on the basis of the melanin in our skin. Now, when you hear that, having spent time this week, you should hear that and go, oh, there's a whole bunch of problems with that. In fact, what you should do is when you see stuff like that from now on, you should see, I want to go to Daryl's Twitter page because Virgil's going to be a little bit slow. 
I want to see what this brother's going to say about this one right here. This will be good. It was Charles Spurgeon who said discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. The first part of the statement is correct, that as people committed to the equality and dignity of all people, we should grieve the death of George Floyd. However, any grief on the subjective basis of one's skin color, especially for those who call themselves believers in Christ, should be closely examined rather than made an excuse of. It's problematic to suggest that people of color are an ideological monolith, meaning that they all felt a certain way about what they saw. Daryl has shared with you, I'll share with you. I never thought about Jim Crow or slavery. I thought, oh my goodness, this man is about to lose his life. Like you, if you've watched the imagery, you're wanting, you're wanting to scream to the officer to get off the man's neck. Nothing to do with the color of their skin. It had everything to do with an image bearer of God. Nothing even to do with the circumstances that caused that to take place. Had to do with that. It's a human being. Add to this idea that people with a certain melanin count were absent of the knowledge. So if you had less melanin than I did, then somehow you were less connected to what was going on, maybe shouldn't feel as, as badly as what's going on. What are they doing? They're minimizing the Imago Dei. If you're white, you're not really, you're not really connected to humanity. If you're black, then you, there's a special knowledge that you have. Vody calls this uh, ethnic Gnosticism. I have special knowledge because of the melanin count in my skin. You know, Daryl is, is darker. He probably has a better, better <laughs> understanding, right? Not to beat a dead horse, but I have no idea who was polled to determine, that what was, to determine what was actually happening in the hearts of fellow citizens of color. I don't know. I'm uncertain how this incident was connected to Jim Crow or slavery. I have no idea why whites would be less concerned than blacks or why blacks would be more concerned than whites. We should all be equally horrified by the death of an image bearer of God, regardless of the circumstances surrounding the death of that person. Now, after the statement, of course, there were numerous Facebook posts and blog articles and podcasts and even sermons that spent time explaining the, the plight of the black man and the need for whites to repent of their whiteness. Evangelicalism, of course, following cultural cues, adopted the narrative of black victimhood and oppression and began calling for racial reconciliation. Unbeknownst to me, though, I, I thought we were already reconciled both to God and to, and, and to one another based upon the finished work of Christ. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And rather than seeking revelation through the whole counsel of the word of God, churches sought cultural relevance, and they adopted the culture's language on these issues. You remember Daryl and I telling you, don't, don't adopt the, the language of the culture on these issues. You use biblical language. Far too many pastors were racing to be the first to step into their pulpit to say the phrase, Black Lives Matter. However, they were disconnected from studying this hashtag movement's origin. Bible study groups were no longer assigned the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And in exchange for these authors, they were told to do group studies with authors like D'Angelo and Tisby and Kendi and Morrison's writings. These are people who have embraced critical racism. 
Pastors were literally that summer inviting that garbage into their church and telling study groups of men and women that this is what you must read and and study and, and discuss. If you ever hear someone do that, Snatch the book out of their hand, and, and, and I was going to say slap them, but I won't say that. <laughs> During this time over the past, I don't know, 20, 22 months, Daryl and I have received thousands of emails and inbox messages from elders and church leaders who, who, and believers who are at a loss about what they're experiencing. Many are asking, what do I do? I think my church has just gone woke. We've received hundreds of emails along that line. If, if I'd made a list of all the churches that, that did that, we would, we, would, we would be here a while. But you all know this. You were there. Many of you experienced it to one degree or another. I just wanted to, to give you my own personal lens to all of what we were experiencing. On a lighter note, one of my favorite movies is, of course, is The, the, the Matrix. Any of you Matrix fans? Oh, a few of you. Not that many. I'm surprised. Well, I can't. I, I, my estimation is most had. In the case, in the instance that most hadn't, let me kind of give you a little bit of background. The Matrix was a 1999 science fiction action film. Of course, does that date me by any stretch of the imagination? <laughs> a man by the name of Morpheus was in search of Neo, and uh, his name was Thomas Anderson. Of course, Neo wanted to break free from the Matrix. The Matrix was this this made-up computer world that wasn't really real. He thought it was real, but it wasn't. Morpheus was in search of Neo to extract him from the computerized, generated world that he was in. Upon finding Neo, before setting him free from the deception of the fake world, Morpheus offers Neo a choice. He asked Neo, he said, you can take the red pill and wake up. And see things for what they really are. Or you can take the blue pill. Go back to sleep. Go back to normal. And live life in the way that you had before. Well, for us, if you've lived through this, you've been given that choice. Most of you are choosing to wake up. We're the truly woke ones, right? (laughs) We're awake. We get it. And we see it for what it is. And our desire is to stand upon the truths of the word of God. We've been red-pilled. However, with each headline regarding the challenges that face us, we only get glimpses, really, of how far the rabbit hole goes. Here's the thing that I've recognized when I've watched this thing unfold, and that is this. What we're experiencing today, while it's new to us, it's not new. It, it, it took on a different name in, in maybe in decades past, maybe 10 years ago, or rather 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago. All of this is the same. We can trace it all the way back, and we've said this a number of times to Genesis 3 in the fall of man. Our desire to be autonomous, to do things the way we desire to do things. We rename these issues and isms, but the reality is all of them reveal the, the evil intent in the human heart. While the root cause of it all points back to the fall of Genesis 3, the current trajectory of CRT is a symptom of a much larger issue. Over the past number of months, we're coming up, Daryl and I are coming up on on about three years of really diving headlong into this and being in places and speaking to groups and, and talking about 
these issues. It's been interesting to, to tell people what the solution is. Everywhere we've gone, every time we go, we tell folks the solution is the gospel, that the gospel is sufficient, that the finished work of Jesus is enough. And, and there are times, not in this audience, but there are times when you can kind of see it in people's eyes. Yeah, I hear you. Every once in a while, there'll be someone brave enough after a, a conversation is over to come up and talk to us. And listen, we, we thoroughly enjoy having conversations about this stuff. We especially enjoy having conversations about it with people we disagree. There have been times when, when he or I have both been at places where someone has come up to us who completely disagreed, but they were open. They were, they, I, I believe that, that, that they were regenerative. They, they, they had a regenerate heart. They, they, they were saved. They were serious about their faith. They were just wrestling. They were coming out of this thing, trying to figure this thing out. And they were brave enough, bold enough to come up and ask us, what are you, I hear what you're saying and I'm almost there, but... And then they would unpack where they were on the issue. We enjoy those conversations. And because of the fact that that we understand what's happening and what's taking place and having experienced in in some instances where they're coming from, it's easy for us to sit back with comfort and confidence and just listen until they get to the end of their thought and provide them what the Word of God says on the issue. But there are others, I can see it in their eyes. They're like, yeah, I hear you, but the gospel, but the gospel, and I'm not sure about that. We, we know about these, these, these philosophies of our day. For example, we, we mentioned Kant and thesis and antithesis and synthesis. synthesis. I can't say that with my, 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 the gap in my teeth, right? You mentioned Hegel and the Hegelian dialect. We, you heard Daryl talk about Hegelian dialectic issues. You've heard us talk about the, 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 thing, the, the issues we face from cultural Marxism. I talked about Max Horkheimer and how he applied critical theory on a larger scale. You heard about the Frankfurt School. We talked about the social gospel with Walter Rauschenbusch. Critical theory, liberation theology. You've heard all of that. You've heard about about James Cone and black liberation theology, which was the precursor for critical race theory. At the end of the day, none of those things matter in light of the weight of the gospel. We need to recognize that when we believe that there's something more, that there's something new, that there's something different that must be done, we are at risk of doing the exact same thing that we are charging others with doing about the issue of race. They don't want to hold to the Bible. It's not enough. They've got to use a tool to, to overthrow to the, the systems and structures of power. They've got to do something because God, I mean, his, his arms are a little bit short and to, to, to take on this issue. So they need to step in where, where God didn't get to it and, and fix it. On the other end, when we say that there's something more than the, the gospel, we're over here. Believing that there's something else that's going to solve this issue and to pull it in our direction when God has set up from the beginning what is primary. We need to be resolved to do the things that need to be done. We need to determine what that is. I'm going to give you three things really quickly. We're going to walk through these quickly that I believe Paul tells Timothy in the text to do. First thing that we need to do is we need to remember. We need, to, we need a reminder, rather. We need to be reminded that things are going to be difficult, often with success. When we experience success in our lives, we forget that, that things are difficult, that we need to endure hardship. 
So the first thing that we need to do is to be reminded that things are going to be hard. The second thing that we need to do is we need to reflect on that which is true. We need to reflect on those things that have been a source of strength from the beginning. And doing so, that will lead us to our third step, which is to respond. We will then be able to respond rightly. I believe this text demonstrates those things. Let's look for a moment at the text to see if those things are in Paul's instruction to Timothy. Before I read the text, I want to remind you where Paul is at the time of his writing. Paul is in his second imprisonment in Rome. The letter is written shortly before Paul's death. Most believe that this was around A.D. 64-65. Paul is anticipating his demise soon. We know that because of what he actually says to Timothy. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and my time of departure has come. Paul is clear about his condition and he recognizes that the end is coming. More times than not, you, when, when you hear the, the, uh, someone say that, that, that a man or a woman is at the point of death, listen closely to what they're saying because what they're saying is of primary importance. So given the nature of the, of the, of, of the context, let's read 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5. Paul writes this to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In verses 1 and 2, you'll find Paul responding, uh, Paul's response urging Timothy uh, to take. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing, preach the word. He charges him to preach the word. Now, I, I, you, you might look at that and say, wait a minute, I thought the first point that you were making was to, to, that we need to be reminded that things will be difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you caught that. Let's go back a, a little bit to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And here we'll find is the reminder that Paul gives. Here's his reminder. He says that in the, but understand this. Here's the reminder. In the last days, there will come difficult times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I usually read that to my kids. <laughs> Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Here's the warning, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. By this warning, you would think that Paul was talking about our day. The truth of the matter is he is because he's talking about the condition of the hearts of men and the condition of men's hearts has, have not changed. This is a constant reminder of Paul throughout Scripture. He constantly reminds them, be careful. There's difficult times that are coming. This is how people will be. This is the manner in which you'll, you'll engage people in the culture. Be, be careful. Here's what's happening. We, we see that this warning happens over and over and over again. 
The true message of the gospel will, will always cause, the, when we're proclaiming the truth of the gospel, we will always face opposition. And we need to be prepared for that. I would argue that perhaps two years ago, we, we had an evangelical culture that couldn't face difficulty, that, that was really uncomfortable with difficulty. I think nowadays, you realize that you're going to encounter opposition. We still have a large part of evangelicalism who's, who's wanting to be liked, who, who, who I, I, do, I, I have done in the past a lot of street evangelism. I would have unbelievers come to me and engage me in conversation. I would have Christians see me on a street corner, get out of their car, and scream at me that I was doing it wrong. And, and what they were after in doing that was trying to tell me, you, you need to do it in a nicer way. You need to, you need to that, that, that sign that, that, that you have that, that tells people to re- repent and believe in Christ or that the gospel saves, you should change that sign. It only needs to say Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was the evangelicalism of, of 2019. You cannot be evangelical in the real sense of the word and not face Opposition. Paul would instruct the elders at Ephesus in this way. You heard me read this text of scripture, Acts 20, verses 28. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I love that charge. What is he telling these elders to do? Guard the flock. It's going to be hard. But Christ has purchased the flock with his own blood. It's imperative that you guard the flock. Time and time again, we see this warning. Paul is in this instance reminding Timothy of this truth so that he would not be caught off guard. Paul encourages Timothy to do this. Go back to uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 10. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. Paul is saying, Timothy, you've, you've been You've been fed the the right food. You know the kinds of things that you need to do. You've been given the tools by by faithful uh, parents, by those who loved you and cared for you. You've watched me. You've watched my example. You know how I've endured. You understand what is at stake. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3 where he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you've learned it, and from your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What is he appealing to? He's appealing to his understanding of the Scripture. What's going to be his strength in the days to come? The Word of God. Then the crescendo of this chapter actually, actually really breathes in new life with regard to the sufficiency of Scripture, where it says, All things are breathed out by God and profitable for reproof and correction. And in training that the man of God would be complete, equipped for every good work. So for us to stand, we must be reminded of the hardship, but we must reflect upon what we know to be true. What do we know to be true? We know that the gospel is truth. 
if we, if we understand the nature of the gospel and its proclamation, we know we're going to have to endure suffering. And once we know those two things, we're able to respond and stand. Now go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now that we understand those two things, as we go to Paul's charge, now that you know those things, I charge you in the presence of God. Does it not ring more loudly, more boldly with the full understanding of of the context of what Paul is telling Timothy? He reminded him of of, of the hardship that he would endure. He's to reflect upon the truth of the word of God. He's to understand the the, the nature of the opposition that comes against him. And then Paul, the, 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 the word crescendo is where Paul says, I charge you, therefore, the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing kingdom, preach the word. There's nothing in addition to that. There's no, there's no outside influence. There's no different ideology. There's, there's nothing extra. It's preaching the word. Why? He needs to be ready in season and out. That's, that's all the time. To reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience for teaching, for the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers who suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul is telling him what's going to happen even as he preaches the word. It's not as if, he's, if, if Paul is saying to Timothy, you preach the word and I guess what's going to happen. It's going to fill your church with all these new converts and things are going to be wonderful and we'll be back to the great days of old. That's not what he's saying. He's letting him know what he will endure as a result of preaching the truth. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. What most pastors are doing rather than being equipped to guard the flock is they're appealing to new programs and new opportunities and ways to win people and influence people that have nothing to do with the prescriptions that the word of God actually provides for us. We are to be resolved as faithful ministers of the word of God as it pertains to the cultural moment and our circumstances. These don't require new programs or new policies. They need for us to know our Bible. This cultural moment needs pastors and church leaders to stop capitulating and to be able to stand on the truth at all costs. We must remember that our historical roots, listen closely, our historical roots are the result of those who were willing to die for what they believed on everything from justification by faith alone to the meaning of the Lord's table. There were men in pulpits who were willing to die for what was meant in the representation of Christ's life and death at the Lord's table. We need those kind of men to be faithful pastors and preachers in our day. Currently, we're witnessing what's happening in culture. And the excitement that I have about all of this is I know that there are men who will stand. I know that the church of God will continue. I know that at the end of the day, Christ wins. And those who are a part of the body of Christ get to experience the joy of that reality. So I would charge you in the way that Paul charged Timothy to be about preaching the word, preach the truth, stand on the truth, 
And we'll see God deliver us in the days to come. Amen? Let me close with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for our time together. As we've covered a lot of ground during the course of the last two days, we've experienced just a measure of your grace in our relations with one another, the fellowship that we've had, the joy that we've experienced in in the singing of songs and the opening of your word. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the revelation that you've given us so that we can withstand the days that we live. I pray, Lord God, for your church, for the church, that men and women would stand strong upon the truths that you declare, that we would understand that these aren't our truths. People aren't attacking us personally when they come against these things, but they ultimately are challenging you. The beauty of the word is that you never fail. We're grateful for that. We stand in that truth. We're grateful. ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.